this is Jonathan Megan, and you're listening to Agile Uprising, a podcast right here, right now. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. And this topic of this week's episode is a unique one. This episode is going to be talking about teams through the lens of distributed systems. What the hell does that even mean, Jay? Well, it's a good thing you're all asking because I have someone here to help explain it. A good friend of mine, fellow colleague, uh, he has a seat at the rare table of smartest guys, Jay knows, uh, Mr. Jonathan Megan. So Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining us again. For those listeners who are paying attention, Jonathan was on a previous episode. We both got up at four o'clock Eastern time to interview Mark Burgess about promissory. So Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Big fan of the show. Hope you know that. Thank you. Thank you. So Jonathan, I'm not going to do your bio. I'm not going to give you an introduction because I think I would not do it any, I would not do it a good service. So um, for our listeners who maybe didn't hear the Promise Theory episode or maybe want to learn a bit of a little bit more about you, um, can you give us like a quick introduction? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. So uh, I'm a principal computer scientist, uh, whatever that means, working in healthcare for about uh, seven or eight years now. I did startups for about five years before that. Um, I'm a, much like yourself, I'm a native uh, Philadelphian, uh, native to the Philadelphia area. I actually went to school in the Pacific Northwest and I did my undergrad research with the advanced OS lab at my school. So that was kind of a catch-all for people who are interested in advanced work. And while I was there, I got really passionate about distributed systems, among other topics. Um, I'm writing a book with a colleague of mine uh, about the actor model, which I am hoping to release for free at some point later this year. You know, uh, God willing, I can get myself in gear and uh, and get the first section done. Uh, yeah. Perfect, perfect. And uh Yes, yes. Uh, Jonathan is a man of many talents. One of the one of the reasons I enjoyed working with Jonathan is we would send links back and forth to one of our stuff that was pursuant to our interests, but kind of tangential, which is where this this episode came from. So uh, the genesis of this episode is Jonathan and I were going back and forth, and um, I think it started with like Lojban, I think, and the idea yes. of of creating a language for those of you who don't know Lojban is a uh, human generated language that allows human humans and computers to speak the same language. So you would code in a language that you would converse. And intent being that on a long enough timeline, we would end up with artificial AGI, artificial generalized intelligence, because we're speaking the same language. But then Jonathan and I started throwing out things like spiral dynamics. Mr. Lulu raised his head and then holacracy came in. And Jonathan proposed, well, we should really pivot the conversation to be about distributed systems and distributed systems as a lens, as a way to look at the world. So Jonathan, let's start off with brass tacks here. How would you define a distributed system? All right. So uh, there are two ways that I would describe a distributed system. The first one is better, is not my definition, but it's better than my definition. Um, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, and it's by Turing Award winner Leslie Lamport, who is an absolutely brilliant computer scientist. And Leslie said, a distributed system is one in which the failure of a computer you didn't even know existed can render your own computer unusable, <laughs> right? And I love this. I love this, right? And the reason I love this is because it's just, first of all, it's so much better than my definition. My definition is, you know, a distributed system is one where different parts of the same logical application cooperate by running in different places and possibly also at different times. That is way less pithy than, 
you know, Leslie Lamport, who, you know, of course, is such a maven, right? Now, the interesting thing is that when I say that they're cooperating, um, that means that two things are implied. So communication, doing things, and computation, right? So speaking and doing things, talking and doing things, communication and computation, those two things are involved. So you need multiple parts for there to be communication, right? Um, and I find that that is the definition that I have stuck to. Uh, it's not always a helpful lens, like you said, to look through things, but sometimes it can really be something that gives you a new perspective. Right, right. And I think um, we, we, we've also talked, we've always talked about over-engineering. We've talked about that sort of thing. But I think that the nuance in a distributed system is the intent is, like you said, you want to maximize computational power by pulling upon different resources, truly resources, not people. Um, but right. with that comes the overload of the, the heavier load of communication and what amounts to the orchestration of the air traffic control and making sure all the pieces are in sync. You know, her, uh, Leslie's uh, definition of distributed systems is like when I asked a, a developer once, what's the definition of a database trigger? And his, uh, Sean Martin, God bless Sean, his response was, imagine going into your kitchen and turning a light switch on and then four houses down the garage door goes on. And I said, oh, that's what it is. He said, yeah, it's just, don't do those. They're bad things, they're bad things. So, so when we think about distributed systems, Jonathan, so you and I come from large, large scale healthcare companies, which have remote workforces spread out across the country, if not the globe, right? We truly are functioning in what amounts to a distributed system, right? Lots of communication, um, lots of computation. What do distributed systems teach us about like things like coordination? What could we learn as humans from something that happens, happens in a distributed system computationally? So I think that distributed systems teaches us a lot about coordination protocols like you talked about. Um, coordination does slow you down. Just like you said, it's an extra load. It's more cognitive load, especially on a team, right? But let's just stick with computers for a second because they're, they're much easier than people generally, right? So coordination slows you down primarily by adding um, delays, which are semi-artificial, right? Or they're sort of naturally implied, but artificial, it's an interesting, depending on your philosophical lens. So they add these delays that are required to get things in sync. And in computing, we see all sorts of instances of this. We see locks, we see consensus algorithms, we see replication delays. Um, sometimes you're getting in, in the way of the speed of light, right? It takes a certain amount of time for a, an electrical signal, even via light, right? Fiber mm -hmm. optics or whatever to be relayed from one side of planet Earth to the other side of planet Earth and that delay, you're, you're butting your head against physics. Don't try and fight it, right? So what are those delays? What is that actual communication aspect of the computation piece, right? What does that other part tell us? And it tells us that coordination protocols slow us down. Great examples of this, um, computer science uh, has a bunch of things, uh, two-phase commit, three-phase commit, right? You have to sort of say, hey, um, everybody get ready. Okay, everybody ready? No, all right, wait a second, wait, wait till everyone's ready, hold it, wait, wait, wait till everyone's ready. Okay, now everyone's ready, cool, all right, do it. And then you gotta wait till everyone does it, mm -hmm. right? And the problem there, it, there were actually numerous problems with just two-phase commit. The, the problem there is that, um, Jay, if I send you a message, how do I know if it's just taking a really long time to get to you or if your response is taking a really long time to get to me? Or how do I know if you've been hit by a bus and you can't text back, right? Right. How right. do I know? There's no way to know 
there's it's literally it's pretty undecidable, right? There's a proof right. here and everything, right? About um, about how do I know if you are functioning properly and there's just a delay, right? Versus if you're gone. Now factor that reality into trying to get everyone on the same page, all these different computers all around the world on, a, on the same page. Because when you're in inside a computer, you're talking about delays of nanoseconds. When you're outside of a computer, you're talking about delays that could be milliseconds or entire seconds or even minutes, right? I mean, crazy long periods of time for a, a computer scientist. Now, an astronomer or a geologist or what have you would look at that time scale and say that is incredibly fast because they work on time scales of millions of years. Right. God bless them. That ain't me. Right. right? It's all about so perspective. When we're talking, yeah. Exactly. It's all about perspective. And that's when we see that, uh, that you know, to, to answer your question, the thing that we learn is that coordination protocols slow things down, which explains recent advances in distributed systems, um, like the CALM theorem, C-A-L-M, um, uh, different types of programming models where um, it doesn't matter what order things come in, doesn't matter, you don't have to get everything in sync because once they all come in, eventual consistency, these sort of different ideas um, are very, very powerful tools when you're, when you're reasoning about systems like this, Jay. So I, I'm going to put the, the agile nerdery lens on that, right? So you're talking about the delays inside of systems, which can add up and add up, and they add to communication problems, collaboration problems, consensus problems, like everything can get sideways. It's, it's almost, it, not almost, it is the same thing as what we deal with when we try to build teams and um, teams of teams and teams of teams of teams, right? There's all those, there's the, I forget the name of the law, I have it on a board somewhere, um, R equals N in paren N minus one over two, right? The number of relationships in the system. So that's yeah. why you have teams that are, should really be three to five, not five to seven. That's a different agile argument podcast, but the more connections in a system, the more, the, the more nodes in the system, the more connections you have, you add complexity, you add overhead, you add delays. And if anybody wants to go back and listen to the interview I did with, um, uh, the Standish group, Jim Johnson from the Standish group around decision latency, the longer it takes to make a decision, the less successful you will be on average, right? So you have a lot of nodes talking to one another, the, the weight of coordination, that, that cognitive load, plus the fact that you're kind of slowing yourself down for the sake of slowing yourself down. That is absolutely right. We have seen this in theory and in practice that multiple members of a team or groups of teams, or just like you were saying at different levels, of the organizational hierarchy, conceptual hierarchy, there are natural effectiveness drops that occur due to delays and the like. And of course, the more people, just like you were saying, the more pieces you have in play, the more communication and the more coordination needs to be there. That formula you mentioned, Metcalf's law, is a fascinating, whether that's true or not, is a really interesting discussion that's actually going on right now in the, in the community of, of mathematicians and computer scientists. But uh, I think it's perfect here, Jay. It, it really is. It makes me think of whenever I have teams that, uh, I mean, <clears throat> teams that get unwieldy or teams where you can't maintain a connection with your colleagues. That's when they become unwieldy. Yes. And I mean, this, the other, uh, we could do a whole other conversation about how we have managers and managers and managers. And when you have like 60 direct reports, like, uh, do you really have 60 direct reports? That's kind of, kind of insane cognitively. But so Jonathan, we're talking about complexity and coordination. And then I want to kind of ease this into a little bit of an aside. The idea of swarm programming, is that and, and swarming, is that meant to try and assuage some of this co coordination latency by having everyone literally look at the same thing? So that's a really cool question that the, the, um, the, the origin of this practice, just in, in case anyone's curious, 
um, is really extreme programming where pair programming, two people um, sharing one screen became popularized. And what the research normally shows is that it doesn't actually reduce your, um, your throughput that much. So most people say, well, two people working on the same thing means that you're going to go at half the speed. It turns out it's actually about 1.6 to 1.7. Uh, so there's a little bit of a drop, but the quality generally is much higher. Right. Um, and that's just for two people. Then you get a group together. And I find that the, the elimination of those synchronization delays that we talked about earlier, right, um, do get, they just compound, right? Um, because you, all of a sudden, especially when you're starting a project or working on a really tricky thing that everyone has to understand, get all those developers looking at the same screen, get them coding together, right? You get in live action, in living color examples of places where more eyes mean fewer bugs, right? Right. And, and, and I just, as you were saying that, Jonathan, I kind of just thought, you know, the other benefit to swarming that, you know, besides talk about, uh, you know, the old joke, none of us are as dumb as all of us. Um, if you have multiple people from the same team working on the same piece of code, the same piece of functionality, right? Um, knowledge transfer costs go down to nil because you're all literally you oh i remember we worked on that whereas if oh right. that typically in a lot of the dev shops i've worked in a new request comes in and the first question that's asked is who worked on this last time who built it do they still right. work here because the cost of waiting for someone else to come up to speed is not something that right wrong or indifferent or is not something that typically our business partners want to bear Whereas swarming, you're literally training everyone up around what's being written at the same time. It's it's anybody who's listening who's a dev lead, please let me know if you had an experience with it and it's and it hasn't gone well because I'm kind of curious. I'm, I don't. There's got to be another side of this coin that we're not seeing. Yeah. So so there are actually some of the best evidence for how to do this right organizationally comes from the world of, of education. One of my mentors, teachers, and friends, Dr. Stephanie Arzanetti Height. Um, Dr. Height just co-published a book. Um, within the last year or two about collective efficacy in specifically in the educational environment and how things like goal consensus and getting everyone on the same page from the get-go and making sure that everyone's sort of pulling in the same direction. Um, th that, that research really highlights that there are things you can do to make sure that it goes well. I love your idea of getting some failure stories out there it's just every time you have a pattern, it's also important to have an anti-pattern so you know not just what direction to go in, but also what pitfalls to avoid, right? right? And that's where the wisdom of crowds obviously kicks in, which brings us back to swarming, right? Right. And one of the things that, that you know, is, is really cool, and by the way, I just want to preface this with a quote by George Box, who I believe was a statistician, all models are wrong, but some are useful, right? When we talk about people pulling in the same direction, um, there is a simple swarming model that you can define, you can describe in plain English. I'm actually going to give you a variation on the one that's on the Wikipedia article on swarming because I think it's really good. Um, and that is, it's a three-step process for how to swarm effectively, right? It's okay. not about top-down. It's about telling the individuals what to do and letting them figure out how to do it, right? And that is move in the same direction as your neighbors. One. Two is stay close to your neighbors. And three, this is the last one here, right? Avoid collisions with your neighbors. Wow, that's really simple and elegant, and yet it really makes a lot of sense. No jargon. It just makes sense. It's uh, but, really cool. 
that same concept, right? So stay close to your neighbors, stay in contact with your neighbors, avoid collisions. That is, Jonathan, keep me honest, that's the same kind of logic you can use when it comes to team interactions, departmental interactions, right? Like uh, um, coordinating at scale, right? We, we, many listeners of the show have heard that we do a lot of conversations around scaled agile framework and scaling agile. Isn't that just good? Like, I don't want to say it's the golden rule of collaboration, but it kind of is the golden rule of collaboration, right? Stay in contact, stay in touch, don't get far, don't collide. I think that it not only, you know, listen, back to your earlier earlier point about individuals in a team versus teams of teams versus, you know, groups of groups, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that you're really circling back to what you said earlier in terms of the importance of looking at different levels of the hierarchy. And you pointed that out perfectly. And that is absolutely true. I don't have to keep you honest here. Um, I would be really curious to see what different kinds of organizations think of that model. Um, you obviously have more rigid, uh, safe, like let's talk about, you know, scaled agile framework, right? Like yep. you were mentioning, very prescriptive. Um, yep. you know, yep. very, very prescriptive. That's a great word. Very prescriptive. Right. Um, you know, I challenge you, uh, to open up the scaled agile framework website and time someone, how long does it take to find the customer on the full safe, <laughs> you know, diagram, right? We should like, run you, that. You we tell should, me. We're going to do that as an episode. We really are. Cause I'd be really curious. <laughs> That's a great hallway usability test, right? Open this giant diagram that tells you how to do everything right from top down, right. And find how long it takes to, to find the customer. Right now, does that mean that a swarming model would find the customer faster? And that's not the comparison that we're making, right? The comparison that we're making is allowing people who are close to the problem to determine the solution in concert with one another based on simple guidelines. And that's how you get swarm behavior in ants. That's how you get schools of fish that work together. I'm obviously simplifying, forgive me. Um, it's, there's some really interesting examples from biology and nature out there. And my question is why are organizations, and maybe you have broader perspective than I do, why are organizations so hesitant to learn from the things that are right in front of us? Uh, if, well, if I had to answer that, I mean, I, if I'm speculating, I really think some of it comes down to fear. Some of it comes down to uh, insecurity, right? Like, let's think about how the world of projects and standard PMBOK-based delivery propagated. It propagated because it helped people sleep at night. Whether what was on the plan or what was real, well, whether what was on the plan is realistic or the delta between the plan and reality was huge, like Grand Canyon size, that didn't matter because someone saw a plan and they got comfortable with it. And I think that there is... There's something to be said about looking at a big picture, looking at a massive diagram, or even having a consultant show you a big picture or a massive right. diagram and saying, here's where, you know, you are, it's like a map in a mall. Those, those people who remember actually go to a mall, you are here. Yeah. I want to get there. Okay, well, I got to do this. Um, so one of the things we were talking about, Jonathan, um, offline, and I'm going to bring it into the conversation, we've talked about, you know, teams of teams, we've talked about the cost of coordination, we've talked about swarming, um, and you threw a word out there, which I had to make sure I was reading it correctly, fractality. Uh, so, so, so fr I, Fract I've always fractal, read it. Fractal, fractality, fractality. Fractality, there we, there right, that's how I've it, always read it. it. And by the way, that is a big word for Elmo. Let me just put <laughs> that out there. Fractality. It's not the kind of one you want to drop into everyday conversation. Um, the notion that um, like a fractal, when you zoom in, right, you see echoes of the whole. It's sort of this theory of reiteration, right? And when you zoom out, those structures remain and you can zoom in infinitely, right? Um, you know, down to the individual level or, or below if you are qualified to 
engage in such uh, psychological analysis. I am not, right? Uh, but you can you can sort of zoom back out, right? Individual, team, department, division, even to firm and company, even to economies interacting. You can sort of zoom in and out, up and down this hierarchy. And yeah, there I've found that if you're using models like these to analyze things, there is a certain level of fractality there. Right. Um, a great example of this, if this is something that interests you, the um, the complex adaptive system uh, world is fascinating. Uh, I recommend that the Santa Fe Institute, they yes. have some wonderful podcasts and wonderful introductory materials. Their books are remarkably cheap on Amazon and so informative. You know, pick one up from your local retailer. If you want a cheap ebook, that's fine. There's awesome stuff out there that can really, I mean, it certainly opened my eyes and showed me the more I learn, the less I know, which is a great feeling. Yeah, the um, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the fractals. Um, you know, for those of you who have seen it, but uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, right? Mandelbrot sequences. Yeah. They look like kind of somebody described it to me as a snowman with warts, the shape, because you know, right. because you zoom in and zoom out. Um, coarse grain and fine grain, the systems look the same. I know, like even ideas like Scrum at scale, it's based on fractals. So you theoretically right. can infinitely scale because you're 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 aggregating and repeating repetition over and over and over. Um, and I'm glad you brought the C word up, right? So shout out to the the complex the complexity institute. Shout out to Dave Snowden and Kenevin and uh, Cognitive Edge. Um, Jennifer Garvey Berger touches this stuff. I love the Santa Fe. It's, there was an episode with a woman who talked about. Uh, ant colonies and how they do decision making and the role of generalists versus specialists. And I was kind of like, awesome. I almost drove off the road because I was like trying to take notes while I was, while I was listening. Um, but let's go back, Jonathan, to the idea of a team, right? A team, technically, a team is a complex system, no? Okay, so, so, so this is a really cool, this is a really cool um, question that you're asking. I just want to make sure I understand it. Are you asking is the landscape of individuals in a team a complex system, right? A complex adaptive system, or is it, are you asking about teams in a group or are you asking I'm about asking both? About, so, we just, uh, I, I'm asking about just teams in general, right? Like, so teams okay. exist in complex adaptive systems because all of our world is a complex adaptive system, right? Like you want to talk about like infinite right. scaling and here comes, here comes Mr. Godel and the incompleteness theorem, which by the way, did you right. know he starved himself to death? Did you know that? That's wild. I didn't, he, but I'll tell you. He used Benoit to take, Mandelbrot, if you want to see some cool, some cool history, look him up too. Tell me what you were going to tell me. All those mathematic mathematicians have interesting histories, but Godel used to take walks with Einstein when they were at Princeton. And he apparently um, later in life developed a very, very deep-seated paranoia. Like he was literally convinced that everyone was out to get him. And he, and that he starved himself to death. He died of like he wasting disease. But, brilliant, brilliant minds, but whatever, whatever. He, and uh, the other funny story about him is he showed up at a conference where John von Neumann was and a whole bunch of other mathematicians. And he started talking about his incompleteness theorem. And everybody basically tried to run him out of the room except von Neumann, who was like, ooh, ooh, come over here. Let's have this conversation because you're saying something that I don't think I get, but I think you're onto something. So uh, long awesome. story short, when the, um, what is, what's the, um, uh, what's it? Smart people, unfortunately, really smart people look like crazy people to dumb people. Was the statement That's that I cool? Was <laughs> the statement I came across? So, so yeah, let's talk about as a team. A team itself is a complex system, right? Yes. So let's let's take um, uh, which okay. So, so so let's take Scott Page, Professor Scott Scott Page, 
um, his, def his definition of a complex system, complexity, right? So a complex system, according to his definition, has four parts, right? So um, I hope I get this right. It's made up of connected entities, which are independent, okay, and which are diverse such that they differ from one another on an individual level. You can distinguish between them and their different flavors of entities, right? Okay. And the coolest part is that which adapt both to their surroundings and to one another. So Connected entities, right? Uh, they are interdependent, right? And they are diverse, right? And they adapt, okay? So if you wanna look at, you know, big systems here, you can look at traffic, right? You can look at mm -hmm. uh, banking networks. You can look at all kinds of other things. Um, love to see it, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you're specifically asking about teams. So, you know, do they meet this definition? They're made up of individuals which are connected. That's true. They are interdependent. Absolutely. They are diverse. Absolutely. You, well, I mean, I hope that they're diverse, right? You're, otherwise, you're going to fall prey to, um, you know, groupthink or what they call it in business school, I believe, is dominant logic, et cetera, right? You want to avoid that, um, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that I don't hire for culture fit when I hire. I hire for values fit. I want you to bring something new to my culture. I want you to care about the stuff that I right. care Right. You know, you can't hire the same. If you hire everybody who thinks the same, then you end up in what is commonly derided in public uh, public discourse today. It's the idea of uh, putting yourself in a bubble where you're only surrounded right. yourself by people who think like you, who think have the same social thoughts. And then you end up painting yourself into a corner. Yes, Absolutely. So exactly right. So 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 your your question. My answer would be that according to Scott Page's definition, absolutely. Now, how do how else do we know other than it fitting the definition? How else do we know that teams are complex systems? Okay. Well, one cool thing that happens is when you have complexity, not just complicated, but actual complexity according to this definition, um, you get emergent behavior that comes mm. about and yields significant novelty. That novelty can be um, measured by how the degree to which it fits a normal distribution. Um, if that's a valid assumption from the get-go, we can have an entire discussion about that with a statistician who would school at least me on that. Um, so no, it's not normal, right? That emergent behavior is not normal, doesn't fit to a normal distribution. Sometimes it's exponential behavior and it fits to a power law, right? But there's also some really cool properties that come out of complexity that we do see come out of good, properly functioning teams, right? Um, robustness, they can withstand disturbance. Mm -hmm. Typically, the more diverse your population uh, in your system, the greater uh, tolerance to disturbance it has. Um, you can see nonlinearity, which is really, really cool. Um, a good example of, of nonlinearity would be that the size of the output is not proportional to the size of the input. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so that is to say, if you put something in, you get an outsized response, right? In throughout the entire system. Right. And with a, well, I mean, getting away from, uh, getting away from the intellectual talk, like that would be something that a good manager would expect in their team, right? If you build a good team, the request right. goes in and what comes out the other end, nine times out of 10 should surprise you because you have brilliant people working together to come up with a novel approach to something. Right, your idea of novelty and the emergent, the emergent behavior. Right, that's that's what you would hope. You just throw it in there, and whatever comes out is, should be mind blowing. Right. You, yeah, and that's why there is such power. You know, again, to the collective efficacy aspect, but there's such power, not to be cheesy, but in people coming together. Right. I mean, one to uh, E.O. Wilson, the famous uh, biologist, said one. One ant. Oh, you're gonna have E.O. Wilson. Yep, yep. Oh so my God, you are the coolest. Yep. <laughs> you are. How do you do that? You're so much cooler. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so, 
so so he has this quote maybe you found it in that book i don't really know where it's from but one ant is no ant right they come in in groups right and you know one person is no team they come in groups right and you see that this emergent behavior only comes when you have multiple entities that come together. A great example, one neuron is not capable of consciousness. A whole bunch get together, cool stuff happens. Right. One car is not a traffic jam. You get a whole bunch of them together, boom, all of a sudden you're late for work, right? So right. these emergent behaviors come about just by nature of these, these, these independent entities coming together and working. And that's maybe the core learning that the core lesson that I have um, been reminded of the hard way, right? When I look at teams through distributed systems, right? Through this lens of distributed systems is that if you over plan, if you over coordinate, if you over design your organization, you end up clamping down on the complexity instead of harnessing the effects of complexity. And you that was gonna be my fighting, question. Yeah. yeah, there you go. How do we, so, so how, Jonathan, how do we screw this up? How do we, and I mean the royal we, right? Like yeah. leaders, managers, um, agile coaches, org design specialists. How do we screw this up? What do we What do we do that screws it up? What should we we, we be looking for? I honestly, the, in the studies that I have made, which are relatively informal, and I would love if anyone out there is an organizational psychologist who can point us to some research to, you know, either uh, either confirm my hypothesis or you know, ideally make a discovery um, that it's wrong, which is the best kind of science, right? Um, the, the, the things that I have noticed in my studies generally come about because of, as I said, over-planning, over-organizational design, too much coordination protocol, right? That right. is what introduces delay. Delay is, if you want to look at uh, this through the Marion Tom Papendiak uh, lens, delay is waste, right? Yep, um, yep. In, in that in that sense. So, so you're sort of introducing waste into the system unnecessarily by overdoing it. I would love to see an experiment. And maybe this is the kind of thing we can do with multi-agent simulation software, right? Um, like NetLogo out of uh, Northwestern. I think that's or Ori Walensky, uh, his, his research group. Um, I would love to see when you give a group of agents the swarming model, right? And then they self-organize into a swarm. If you then take a swarm of swarms, right? And what happens? I would love to see an organization adopt a simple enough, like you said, jargon-free, really relatable, understandable swarming model. Give it to individuals on the same team. Let them assemble together, right? Give that to teams in a division or in, in a department. Let them organize together and so on and so on up the chain, right? To let the people who are closest to the problems solve the problems because they have the best understanding and let them make autonomous decisions by pushing that decision-making itself to the edge. Right, right, right. Let the, let the decisions, it's the, Peter Maurer calls it the doer decider distance. Shrink that to the point where the person who's doing it is the person closest to it is the person should be deciding. So the other thing I'm taking out of what you're saying, Jonathan, if I'm like, if I'm a leader, right? Or if I'm an, an executive, the other thing I'm taking from what you just said is you, we need to consciously design our systems with room to breathe. They need to be given a little bit of space in order to expand or contract or find their own, um, their own center, right? And, and when you were saying that, here's the analogy that pops in my head because I read too much, right? CJ Chivers is the war correspondent for the New York Times. He wrote this book titled The Gun, which is the history of, it was three parts, the history of the machine gun, right? 
the history of the Autobot Kalashnikov 47, the most well-known prolific machine gun in the world, and then how it became so prolific. And when we talk about designing systems to breathe, uh, he tells stories of American troops in Vietnam who had the Armalite AR-15, which is the M16 precursor, and the NVA was being supplied by the Chinese with the AK-47. And the Armalite would always jam. It would always jam. It was always screwed up. And the part of the problem was it was designed so tightly coupled. Here we go. Sulfur architecture. It was so tightly coupled that the moisture and the humidity and the climate would interfere with the mechanism of the gun. The AK-47, however, did not have this problem. Now, everybody knows that the AK-47, you've got to be a decent shot to hit the broadside of a bus 15 feet away because it bounces all over the place. But the gun is designed to have that space. The, the, the studies have shown that you could take that thing and drop it in a mud puddle, pick it up, and the first round will actually clear the breach in the barrel. It's designed to be resilient because it, you know, and they said because it's got spaces, it's got room to expand and contract. It's not so tightly coupled. And the, the thing was, you know, we have this M16, which is a good weapon, but the AK-47 is just that much more reliable. It was designed so you didn't have to maintenance it because it would fix, sort itself out. And I think it is, you know, not going to bag on it, but I think of some of the scaling frameworks we do or some of the things that agile coaches come around the corner and wave and say, we need to do this. We need to do this. Here we are lecturing about modularity in software engineering, but then we don't uh, take that same approach with how we design organizational systems. You know, that's a really cool parallel. Um, We can learn a lot from the phenomenon that we observe every day, not just you know a, a, a weapon finding its own way to expand and contract and find optimal equilibrium to maintain its function, right? That's mm-hmm. a really cool observation. Another place um, that we can find that is actually the pro-democracy uh, protests in Hong Kong. That can they can teach us a lot about system design and mm-hmm. uh, organization. Um, I gave a talk at one point about system design lessons from the Hong Kong protests, and one of the things that we talk about in there, right, about finding the equilibrium is that every system is gonna have to find its own. And one of the reasons that the protesters were so much more effective than the police, especially in the in the early phases of that was because they, sacri- they, the, they picked if effectiveness over efficiency, right? Right. Okay. Right. And the police, the police who were trying to crack down on these on these pro-democracy protests, right? They stuck to their strategy. They didn't change. They stuck to their tactics. They didn't change. They stuck to everything because this is the this is the tactic that we are optimized for. So we're gonna we're gonna fight it all the same way, right? We're gonna tackle the problem in front of us the same way that they that they always have, and they didn't adapt fast enough. So yeah, were the police on the macro level more efficient? Absolutely. But they certainly weren't as, as effective. Uh, yes, yes. It's the, you know, you talk about equilibrium and the idea that, I think some of the things that we lose, Jonathan, as people, and this is going to be a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I'm not, I'm not going to take us down. I'm going to give you a glancing blow and move us along. I think some of the problem that we have with, with um, some of our organizational systems, our political systems, our structures, is we design them like they're machines and they're not. They're organisms. They're organisms, right? So the idea of homeostasis, where a system left to itself will find a way to meet its own equilibrium, right? Like the idea of um, low entropy and high entropy systems, it's like when you sit in a chair and your butt is warm and the chair is cold, over enough time, your butt and your chair will equal the same temperature because it reaches a, an, an equilibrium. And I think to your point, when you commit to one side too far, 
you you remove the ability to seek that homeostasis, right? Like I just, you know, it's yeah. funny you mentioned um, the Hong Kong protesters and the police and how they stuck to a plan. I just finished Adapt by Tim Horford, Harford, Tim Harford. And he talks about the importance of evolution when it comes to successful system design, organizational design. And he references Peter Polchinski, who was this Russian um, engineer who was around for the czars. He was a, he was a Trotskyite. He was around for the, the, the revolution. And the Soviets hated him. The communists hated him because he was brilliant. And they would say, how do we fix this? And he would go in and he would look at him and say, well, here's your problem. But they, he never gave him the right answer. So they would, they would send him to a gulag. They brought him back. They did this two or three times and they killed him. But his, and then they eventually killed him because he would not admit to whatever he was charged with. Uh, but his thing, his thing, when we talk about complex systems, when you talk about organizations, organisms, evolution, he had three principles, which I think makes sense here. His first principle was variation, right? You need to try different things. Consistent experimentation. Yeah. This is where you give the system room to breathe, like we talked about. The second thing is survivability. Whatever experiment you do run, you need to be able to survive it. The operation, the operation cannot be successful, but still kill the patient. And his right. third thing was selection. When you find what works, you need to use that as a new model and test that against all these other things in combination with other things, because then maybe you'll find an even better solution, which is how, which is how nature works, which is how you and I are sitting here and we're not, you know, just bears with opposable thumbs, because that's really what guys are anyway. Um, Jonathan, I want to sure. go back to very early on when you did your introduction, you talked about the actor model. And I'm not even so sure I get it. I think I do. Can you explain us a little bit about the, uh, explain to us a little bit about the actor model and then how it ties into the book you're writing? So, so yeah, um, when we talk about uh, the cooperative aspect, right, mm -hmm. um, the actor model does become relevant. So uh, a little bit of history, the actor model is a model of concurrent computation, right? So uh, computers doing more than one thing uh, seemingly at the same time, right? Um, it, it has been uh, extended to true parallelism where they actually do th things at the same time. Um, and actors, uh, this model of concurrent computation, it was developed by primarily by um, Gul Agha when he was working on his PhD in Carl Hewitt's research group at some, you know, I'm blanking on the university. Um, and basically the whole premise is that every, um, every piece of the system is an actor. It's this primitive mm -hmm. notion. And what is an actor? Well, it's anything that obeys the three actor axioms, the laws of actorhood, okay? So uh, law one, it has to have communication, which is specifically the ability to send and receive messages. So an actor can send and receive a message um, with other actors, right? So I can, let's say I'm an mm -hmm. actor, you're an actor, I can send you a message, right? Okay, cool. Um, state, which is the ability to remember things such that the reactions for subsequent messages are altered, right? So let's do a quick example. I'm an actor, you're an actor. Actor, uh, Jay, remember that the magic number is three, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, what's the magic number? Three. Okay, well, you, you, you remembered, right? So therefore you have state. And that altered the answer to a subsequent message, right? So that's number two. Number three is replication, the ability to spawn or create more actors, okay? So if it has communication, memory, and replication, it is an actor. Now, this should sound a lot like a very general, non-specific model of human beings. I can't control you, 
I can send you a message in various forms and ask you to do something, but ultimately it's up to you whether you do it. I can't reach into you and mess with things, right? How, however, we, we want to do that. So, so the actor model, which I'm writing my book about with my colleague, Matt Ping, who is wonderful intellect, great person, um, brilliant practitioner. Uh, the, the actor model became hugely influential in computer science in various circles and specifically distributed systems research because there's no requirement that actors execute in the same place or at the same time. So all of a sudden ah, you can okay. have, yeah, it's really cool. So all of a sudden you can have two actors passing messages and they're running on different computers in different data centers on different continents or however you want to do it. And then you get back to, you know, my crappy definition of distributed systems, which is, uh, which is communication, talking, and computation, doing things, okay? So um, this is a really cool uh, way of modeling concurrency, uh, programs doing more than one thing at once. I find that the normal, traditional, threaded model of programming is a poor metaphor for concurrency, in addition to being confusing as all hell, at least to me, mm -hmm. um, right? There's so many bugs in this. The actor model takes very different approaches, and you will find that the software systems that can produce um, actual operational software that has the highest uptimes, the highest resilience to failure, uh, they use the actor model. Um, Erlang, which was invented in the 80s by Ericsson for programming telephone switches, um, great example. The new programming language Elixir, which is built on the same platform as that, makes that, uh, that whole swath of functionality, really resilient fault tolerant systems using actors, much more accessible to certainly me, um, you know, and yeah, I mean, I, my job is to build imaginary objects for money. So I find this stuff incredibly useful, right? Um, and, I've never heard you know, development and, referred to that way, but it really kind of is. These I, ephemeral, I ephemeral imaginary objects for money. <laughs> yeah, and, and weirdly they pay me, which is really cool. You know, so, 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 so this, you know, this, this actor model, um, I found that when I was talking with my with my co-author Matt Ping, uh, I found that the literature and 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 Matt agreed with with this assessment. Um, the literature tends to fall to two extremes: either the actor model literature is very very abstract, right, and really primarily useful in an academic context, or it is very implementation specific. So it will say this is how you solve okay. this problem with the actor model in this programming language using this library, right? So there's nothing in between super abstract and super specific. So one of the things that our book tries to do is it tries to, to take the patterns that we find and, and show them in terms of actors, but using a variety of different programming languages to get the concepts to stick um, as best we can and make it appeal to as many people um, as, as we, can, we can find, right? Um, obviously, it's an imperfect parallel for, for me to draw, especially when it comes to supervision trees and error handling. Um, it sort of flies in the face of the swarming uh, discussion that we just had and the value there. Um, but software systems and organizations are very different in a lot of ways as much as we can draw parallels. Like you said, they're a little mm -hmm. bit more like organisms. I really like the biology metaphor. Um, I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, you're, you're going to be hearing more of that soon. So um, let's talk about Jonathan. Let's call back to the episode we did with Mark Burgess and Promise Theory. Right. So if you have a bunch of actors working in distributed systems, right, where in comp they are residing in distributed systems that reside in a complex adaptive system. Right. Here we go. Inception, multiple levels. So this is where things like promise theory come in. Right. Where 
um, two people agree, then I promise you that I'm going to deliver this. It helps aid in the idea of convergence where we're converging on something versus we talk about what we kind of need and then we, as anybody who's been in um, software development in the enterprise for more than 15 minutes knows, you wildly diverge and what you, you know, I wanted the rack of lamb and I got a Wawa sizzly, you know, like that's right. typically what happens. Yeah, I think, I think that promise theory is a really cool um, adjacent topic to this. And Mark Burgess has written extensively on this topic, um, both for computer scientists and mathematicians to look at, um, as well as you know, people in business and people in technology, especially. Um, promise theory is a really cool alternative to a lot of the um, obligation logic. So we tend to think of, um, how, how do I want to say this? We tend to think of command and control systems as primarily being about imposition, right? As right. opposed to flipping this on its head and saying, well, I'm not taking orders. I'm promising to fulfill this, this request, promise, right? Yes, I'm, yes. I'm saying exactly, right? So, so it sort of puts the, you know, philosophically, you may say that it puts the onus on the individual to actually do the thing that they're supposed to do. And that's a really cool concept. Um, highly recommend that you uh, any listeners who are out there, check out Mark Burgess's work. Uh, maybe listen to that episode. He was uh, he was really erudite in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly gave me a lot to think about. Terrifyingly brilliant. Yes, terrifyingly brilliant. So, Jonathan, we've talked about distributed systems. We've defined them. We've defined the actor model. We've defined complexity and how all these things are complex. Let's go a little bit off the beaten path and talk about... Um, hierarchy and hierarchy specifically in regards to organizational structure vis-a-vis some of the I, there's thought models out there where you want to totally blow away all of your hierarchy right things like sociocracy things like holacracy right. things like um, right. there was a, there's another one where it's it's just a massive re-leveling now we've I, I got to interview Brian uh, Brian Robertson it was really kind of fascinating his thoughts on holacracy um I'm just, I'm still on the fence. I'm not sure if these type of ideas would work seeing how humans are, right? Like I, I, I just, yeah. I, I, that's the thing I keep butting my head up against. What are your thoughts? So my thoughts are that I don't know if the theme of this show uh, teams through the lenses of distributed systems. I don't know if distributed systems has an answer to your question, right? Um, and I can tell you that I certainly don't have an answer to your question. Um, I think that I think that uh, a lot of it is dependent on culture in, you know, and sort of I'm going to give you a typical computer scientist answer and say it, it depends. Right. Which is um, also the having, agile coach's default answer, by the way. So you're in cool. Company. Cool. This is what when you don't yeah, know, it, pull the ring in the middle of my back and I just yell, it depends. And then there you go. Right <laughs> there. There you go. Right. So so, uh, you know, and, and there are people who have thought and studied this far more than, you know, certainly I have it. It's not, you know, it's not my area. Um, we, you mentioned uh, Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organizations and his classification system based on color, which, you know, has some really interesting strengths and weaknesses. You mentioned holacracy and sociocracy. Um, you know, I, I guess I would, I, would, I would answer your question also with a question. I would say, which pieces of human nature do you find to be obstacles to adopting a lower hierarchy model? So Jay, the Jay, the social scientist here. Um, I missed my calling. I missed my calling. I shouldn't be a podcast. Love it. Love it. Um, I think. I guess my paramount objections are one of when you look at human history, right? And when you look at the people, the authors who write books on things like mega history, right? Your Jared Diamonds, your Yuval Harari. 
um, your um, Peter Turchin, and they talk about viewing history through the lens of all of it. And you know, one of the things that led us to be the perfect apex predator on this planet is our ability to collaborate simple tools, right? Thumbs, simple tools, collaboration, networking across large groups, right? It's truly a distributed system is what allowed us to invade Australia and kill off all the megafauna, for example. Um, but I do think there are some parts of humanity where we do have that innate concept of a pecking order Right, Howard Bloom talks about this in the Lucifer Principle, where there is some concept of a pecking order, and whether we like it or not, it's almost a natural fit for us. And you know, we're gonna, let's call back to E.O. Wilson. He said that we have we are primitive cr primitive creatures operating in a Victorian system of society with with godlike technology or something to that effect. But wow. our brains have not, you know, when you have when you take your your map your mammal brain. Um, you, you take it with your, your baseline brain, right? Your, your, uh, the back part, right? I forget, I'm totally blanking now, right? Your lizard brain, your mammal brain sits on top of your lizard brain. And then your human brain sits on top of your mammal brain. And that is the least evolutionarily advanced part of us. We're always going to go back to that mammal part, the triune brain. We're always going to go back to the mammal section and the lizard section, which is telling us there is some sort of hierarchy. So that's where, I mean, maybe I should call Brian again and have him come back on to talk me through this. But I really do think we... Maybe we need it, or maybe we don't need it. I don't know, but I definitely can tell that we humans feel comfortable, and, and generally, we feel more comfortable. We know that there is some sort of who is in charge, right? And and so maybe at this point, maybe the most brilliant people on the planet are all of our religious scholars, right? Because they literally know who's in charge, and they just truly have faith that there is something up there. I don't know. I don't know. But I think human wow. nature, human nature, and our our need to know that someone is planning or in charge because it adds safety and adds stability. I kind of think that's what gets in the way. And maybe it is just an evolutionary thing where our brains haven't caught up huh. to the mammal part, hasn't caught up to the human part or vice versa. So, you know, I am reminded when you're talking about human nature and in, especially in the context of, you know, a very stark right and wrong spectrum, um, I am I am reminded of a book by the Egyptologist Kara Cooney that came out probably within the last year um, called The Good Kings, uh, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and Today or and Modernity or something like that. And uh, in this, Dr. Cooney, she speaks extensively on the the rose colored glasses with which we view ancient Egypt as this, you know, as this wonderful society. And she talks about through analyzing the reigns of different pharaohs, uh, this is pretty cool, uh, like what life was like at various different levels of society. And uh, if you were at the bottom, it sucked, right? Um, and that was horrible, right? And we don't, we don't want that in our companies today, right? We don't mm -hmm. want that in our, we do not want to be ruled by a Pharaoh. My people were freed from Pharaoh. It was not good, right? Right, right. Thousands of years later, we still, you know, have a big dinner and remember it, right? Um, you know, we, 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 we have a lot of learning to do, I think in terms, I mean, and this is just, just me talking here, right? Um, in terms of the way that we treat one another, in terms of speaking to one another with compassion in the workplace, showing kindness, and really that cooperation, that, that, that understanding of one another and diversity and differences, that is what allows you to move in the same direction as your neighbors. That is what allows you to stay close to your neighbors. That is what allows you to avoid collisions with your neighbors. And I really, 
um, this book is really cool. And it, in certain ways, it definitely speaks to your objections, right? It definitely strengthens the argument uh, of, of your objections there. Right now, now I'm not sure you could establish a an Egyptology nerd to computer scientist pipeline, um, but uh, <laughs> hey, strange that things is certainly <laughs> that is certainly the path I took, man. You know, I once turned in a homework assignment written in hieroglyphs, and uh, I thought it was dash clever. Uh, I, my teacher did not. I would have given you the A. If I was the instructor, I would have given you the A because it takes chutzpah to do that. So I would like, hey, I, anybody who's got the stones to pull that off, go for it. Go for it. So, well, so Jonathan, eighth grade me did not, oh, did even not better. have you as a teacher. Even so, better. Yeah. Eighth grade, even better. So if we had to if we had to summarize, like, so we've covered a whole ton of ground. Um, if we had to summarize all this into like a thesis, like if you were, if you were telling me, if you were giving instructions to all of our listeners, right, all the people who are listening regarding, you know, looking at teams through the lens of a distributed system, what would that core thesis be? Like, how would you summarize this conversation? I would say two things um, that are based off the learnings and the parallels we can draw with various distributed systems research. Um, I would say that, you know, one is centralize uh, sparingly and deliberately, intentionally, right? If you're going to centralize uh, something and remove people's autonomy in any way, um, whether it be choice or freedom to act or whatever it is, um, you know, centralize uh, only as you need to. And then I would go back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, as a core thesis, don't overplan, overstructure, overarchitect, or overspecify your systems, whether they be organizations or software, right? Don't do those things. Don't overdo it because you'll end up sacrificing effectiveness in the in the name of efficiency, right? And I think that, that I think that that is the hardest the hardest thing to resist doing for many organizations is to, you know, your, your, your big design up front, right. Your, uh, in terms of software architecture practices and all, all these other things. Um, and it plays right into the basics that the agile community has known about for a long time, sense and respond over command and control, all those sorts of things. So yeah, you know, don't, don't, don't overdo it. Right. You know, guide with an easy hand, don't play too close. Right. right. Give people the freedom and trust them. I mean, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything that, I'm sure previous guests haven't said, uh, but hopefully it does reinforce the importance of of those relationships and the people that you're with. Perfect, perfect. So Jonathan, um, if someone's checking out this episode, they want to find you, they want to get in contact, uh, they want to ask you some questions, maybe pick your brain, where do they find you? They can absolutely find me, um, I think on the Twitter, the the bird site um, is is how many people find me. Um, I'm also weirdly Googleable. Um, my handle everywhere from IRC to Twitter is Yonkeltron, Y-O-N-K-E-L-T-R-O-N. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to hear from you. I, I hope it's clear that I love this stuff and would love to nerd out with anyone who wants to nerd out with me. So consider this an open invitation to continue this discussion, um, provided that uh, you can teach me uh, half as much as Jay has taught me. Um, in our in the in, oh, in the please. in the many years of our friendship, so thank you. <laughs> please, you, you're flattery. Uh, so, on behalf of myself, I want to thank Jonathan for taking time out of his evening to come and have this conversation. We've been scheduling this and moving it around for quite a bit, so it was awesome to finally do it. On behalf of Jonathan and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in once again. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, 
give us a review, a rating, a comment on your podcast platform of choice. It does help others find us. Uh, we do have a very vibrant Discord server. Yes, Discord. It's not just for video gamers and crypto bros anymore. So if you want to come in and have the conversation, we talk about all of our episodes. We, we go down the rabbit hole. Um, we talk about books. We talk about classes to take it. I really do suggest if you want to get involved and meet some really interesting people, definitely do that as well. And lastly, we are committed to always being free. However, we do have a Patreon. And we also have a quarterly award Patreon level. So um, once a quarter, we send out gifts. Last quarter, it was socks. This quarter, I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll send my autographed copy of Adapt with all my notes inside of it by Tim Harford. Uh, but we do offer that as well for people who like the show and want to support and offset hosting and production costs. So once again, on behalf of Jonathan and myself, I want to thank all of you for tuning in. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out.